0: Corinthians chapter 1. So we're not going to get the whole book of 1 Corinthians. This is not the beginning of a series on it, but this is a very important passage about philosophy, doctrine, apologetics. What we have is Paul, he's writing, he's writing to a church, the church at Corinth, and he calls blessing in verse 30. At verses 4 through 9, what we enter into here is a thesis statement for the book. So, what we're told is, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you by Christ Jesus. That you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance and all knowledge. Now, let's hear all that, and it kind of just flows through your mind, like, this sounds like platitudinous, you know, I really care about you guys and I'm real happy for you. Thanks for being you. Right? That's what you that's kind of the tendency when we hear these blessing statements or, or these I'm thankful for you statements. Let's back it up. What is he thankful for? The grace of God, which was given to them by Christ Jesus. Okay. that just salvation? Is that just the favor of God towards them? Well, look at what follows. Comma. That you were enriched in everything by him. Enriched in everything. So the grace, this favor that wasn't merited, right? What was it? What's the grace that was given to them? Something that they were enriched in. What were they enriched in? All utterance and all knowledge. Utterance. What's that? Words. Knowledge. It's thought content. It's what words communicate. So the words that were given by God by the grace of Christ that gives knowledge, utterance and knowledge. Verse 6, Even as the testimony, words of Christ, was confirmed in you. And so the testimony and the utterance, knowledge and that testimony being confirmed in you. Parallel. so that you come short in no gift. Now, he's writing to the church at Corinth. But if you go back into verse 2, the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Who doesn't come short in any gift? It's the church universal. Not just the church of Corinth. It's the whole church. We've received all the gifts Christ meant to give. So, back down to verse 6. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift. What kind of gifts? What kind of gifts are we talking about? Gifts of grace. What kind of gifts of grace? Well, riches. That's what he said earlier. Early. Been enriched. What kind of riches? Doctrine, words, knowledge, testimony. The theme of the book is about revelatory gifts. So it's about. It's about how do you know? Knowledge comes through the revelation that God gives. So that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. People want to make that about when Jesus Christ returns, and it's not. It's about the revelation that came through the testimony, that came through the utterance, that came by the knowledge that was confirmed in us. So it's about there's a very specific reason people want to make that into the second coming. It's because they don't like how chapter 13 works if you don't. Chapter 13 talks about the cessation of tongues. Pentecostals have a real problem there. Since their entire theology is built upon this, if you don't have tongues, you aren't saved. And you can see a modified Pentecostalism that says, well, it's a second blessing. But it continues, and true churches have tongues speaking. It's false. 1 Corinthians 13 clearly teaches that that will stop when? When the complete revelation comes. Okay, that's what 1 Corinthians 13 talks about. When you look at the context, it's abundantly clear. It's talking about revelatory gifts and how the partial will stop when the complete comes. Context is very clear. In order to provide some reason to read it that way, the fight moves to verse 7 here. What is this revelation of Jesus Christ? That's supposed to provide a basis to make chapter 13 about Jesus and his second coming, as opposed to revelatory gifts. So that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the day of judgment. Revelation is not. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We need the revelation of Jesus Christ so that we can be confirmed to hold on until Christ returns. The revelation is complete, is given to us so we can hold on until Christ returns. We don't just hold on like holding out. It's not just like machine guns over the wall. Like soon the airstrike will come, and and then you no, know, it's. We are advancing. Remember, it's the gates of hell, not the gates of the church. It's the gates of hell that are being overcome, not the gates of the church that are being overcome. It's not the gates of the church that are holding on for dear life, just white knuckling through. It's the gates of hell. We're battering them down. We're taking the place over. We're tearing down the towers. All of their strongholds get destroyed. So, what we're doing is we're taking the testimony, we're taking the utterance, we're taking the knowledge, we're taking the revelation. We're taking the gifts that have been given to us by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're filling the earth with them. The revelation is important. The testimony is important. The utterance is important. The knowledge is important. They are supernaturally given, they are words from God. They're in the mind of Christ. That's what we have. That's what we have. Other people don't have. We have the words of Christ. The words of Christ stored up in your heart give you power. The words of Christ, believe, are the instrument of justification. The words of Christ, spoken, overcome the enemy. The words of Christ, pray, call down the power of heaven. We have the words of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We are being renewed after the image of Christ. Our rational service comes from our being transformed after the most rational man to ever walk the earth. verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. This is why we have a confessional standard. This is what covenanting is about. That we can all speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you. But that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Judgments about what's right and wrong. That's the covenant uniformity of practice. That's what we do. That's how we work together. Have you seen how this is all over the place in the Bible? I'm like, showing you, showing you, showing you places where this exists, this idea of a covenanted uniformity, the confessing the same things, having the same judgment, doing the same thing together, this idea of having unity. The unity of doctrine and practice is a big deal. In the history of the Church, The church has cared about having uniformity of doctrine and practice, including worship. It's always bothered Christians when there was disagreement about how to worship God, except for right now. And the thing that's really disturbing about it is it's evangelicals who don't care. The people who have the gospel. Why? Why? There's this disregard of the authority of the church, a disregard for the care about the worship, a disregard for the unity, for covenanting. I think it's because there's an infection in America. That infection is a doctrine of thinking that the individual is not joined by divinely established bonds of duty through institutions like the household, the church, and the state. Hopefully that's a theme that you think you've heard a lot from me. Part of the reason I say that a lot is because it is a heresy in our time to think about any of those as anything other than voluntary institutions except for the state. So covenant institutions established by God, we seek to share together... In a spoken word, what we confess and have unity, not division, being perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. When you disagree with a brother, it should bother you. You should be desiring to figure out why you disagree. Does't mean you have to make it really contentious and demand that it be resolved right then. But it should be something that gets put on your to-do list. Is caring about agreeing with each other. And you're going to do that until you die. But coming to greater and greater agreement and helping your kids to be there, so they're in more and more agreement, that's the progress of the unity. The progress of the unity, where you come to agree, and you speak the same thing, you have the same mind, you have the same judgment, there is not division, you're perfectly joined together. Now, at the same time, we have different jurisdictions so that we can operate while we disagree. Different heads of house, different local churches, individuals. Verse 11, for it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Notice this, the Apostle Paul didn't just go out a personality disputes. He went, I'm going to write a letter inspired by the Holy Spirit, and this letter's going to talk about, at the very beginning, how big of a deal it is that there are divisions in a particular local church. For he's been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, each of you says, I'm of Paul or I'm of Apollos or I'm of Cephas or I'm of Christ. I always love that last one. I love that last one so much because you know people like that who are like, no, I'm not a Calvinist. I'm a Christian, right? That, That thing, that response. The issue is not the name. The issue is not whether you have some name that you can associate your doctrinal position with. The issue is, is there actually a divisiveness based upon holding to your own opinion? rather than the Word of God. Is there actually divisiveness based upon holding to your own opinion rather than the Word of God? The issue is not labels. I'm a super lapsarian Calvinist. I'm post-millennial. I'm, name it. There's a long list. I love the labels. You know what they provide? Clarity. The labels are great. The labels are, we've worked through this thing, We've got a name for it, and that tag, that name, that label makes it easier to have a way of capturing that information and communicating to other people. That allows for unity faster. The names are not the source of division. Disagreement with the word of God is the source of division. Verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And if you think you have your doctrine and your doctrine supports an idea of a division inside of the body of Christ, not a division for people who are outside, a division within, that's illegitimate doctrine. If you just go live and let live, don't care, agree, disagree, wrong, that's not a Christ. No. It's not a Christ come to increasing unity. You work through the disagreements. You work through the disputes. That's what the covenant unity is. Is Christ divided? No. Was Paul crucified for you? Oh, why are you going to take a human idea and make it as though it came from the Lord? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? So the idea there is we're being called to think about the gospel comes from Christ. The gospel's about Christ. He's the one that died for us. We're baptized in the name of the Trinity. So we submit to the Word of God. Verse 14 I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. And he's saying, You know what's more important than baptizing? This is very important, by the way. What's more important than baptizing? Preaching. Doctrine, words. If you get to choose between the two, pick preaching. Now, that's false dichotomy. You should be able to do both. Preaching matters more. The word matters more. The doctrine is what gives meaning to the baptism. And he's thankful. He can go around baptizing. Said they were focused upon some sort of apostolic succession of baptism, I've literally heard somebody recently argue as their basis for the unity of the church. That's exactly, literally, what Paul is arguing against, is an apostolic succession of baptisms. You know what there's an apostolic succession of? People believing the doctrine of the Bible. The succession is who had the words take hold of their soul that's the succession. I don't care who baptized who, who laid hands on who. If you don't believe the doctrine revealed in the Word of God, you are not a Christian. The words, not the outward forms, the words believed. I thank God that I baptized many of you, except Christmas and Gaius. Lest anyone should say that I baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Remember, I told you 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 11. Paul defines there the gospel. There's that doctrine, there's a pattern of words, there's a confessional statement. That text. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. What does that mean, wisdom of words? Isn't words the means by which God communicates wisdom? Yes. Are there wise words? Yes. What's the wisdom of words? The wisdom of words is rhetoric. Human doctrine, words without spirit. Rhetoric is speaking well, regardless of whether what you're speaking is good. Rhetoric can be used to support good words. It can also be used to support bad words. You can support false doctrine with beautiful ornamentation. You can speak beautiful doctrine with ugly words. try to give you that every week. The wisdom of words. That can be rhetoric, just looking to having high-sounding things without true doctrine. Human doctrine would be a wisdom of words. It would be a, a saying things that might tickle the ears, might be interesting. But are they the truth? Are they the wisdom that God has revealed? The wisdom of words in the giving of a word by itself without the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think that what Paul is talking about here is rhetoric. He's talking about speaking in high-sounding words. But any of those other things would be systematically true. Human doctrine is going to be talked about and word without spirit will also be talked about later in First Corinthians. So it's possible to view the wisdom of words here is representing all three. It's at least rhetoric. So, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message, a message, what's message communicating with? Words. A message, if it's communicating the good and the means to the good, is wisdom, right? And so we have the testimony of Christ, it's the message of the cross. For the message of the cross, the message of the cross, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us, who are being saved, it is the power of God. Does that sound familiar at all to you from Romans 1, verses 16 and 17? The gospel is the power of God and the salvation to all who believe. The you first, and then the Greek. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, and here we're talking about human wisdom. This is the doctrine of humans now. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. What? Oh, wisdom is good. I'll bring you nothing understanding the third number. Understanding. But the Proverbs tells us to get understanding all the time. And to be prudent. What's the deal? The Bible contradicting itself? The point here is and it's gonna be explained down further, okay? But the point here is, you could put quotes around the word wisdom. The wisdom of the wise, right? Quotes around wise as well. so it's the fake wisdom of the pretend wise. And bring to nothing the fake understanding of the fake prudent, right? Those are the world upholds as wise or prudent. Their understanding, their wisdom, it is not understanding. It is not wisdom. In other words, the wise people of the world, the false philosophies, the false philosophers. Verse 20, this is going to explain that. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Right, so, the wise person of this age, the scribe of this age, the disputer of this age. Is not God made foolish? the wisdom of this world. You see how that's explaining for us earlier on, the wisdom above, the wise above. Those are the quotes around it. Verse 21, For since the wisdom of God, sorry, for since in the wisdom of God, notice here, wisdom is attributed to God. God has wisdom. Therefore, is all wisdom bad? No. Paul is laying side by side for us. Wisdom of God Versus the wisdom of the world. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through wisdom, did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Wisdom there. We say Philosophy. There's Christian philosophy, the love of wisdom, and there's worldly philosophy. Every set of doctrine, every belief system is a philosophy. There are an infinite number of hypothetical false systems of thought. There is one true system of thought. That is the wisdom of God. It is the philosophy of Jesus Christ. It is the eternal wisdom, the Logos. It is the mind of Christ. That's the true philosophy. Every other philosophy is wisdom of the world, demonic doctrine, inventions of the flesh. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom... Did not know God. In other words, any wisdom coming from demons, the world, or the flesh is not a wisdom through which God was known. Because of that, because of that ignorance, because they didn't know God through their own philosophies, it pleased God through the foolishness, and you can put quotes around that, right? Foolishness. The foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. What is the thing that is brought to the elect that saves them? It's the preaching of the message from the mind of God. It's the preaching of the gospel. And we're going to have explained throughout 1 Corinthians later on, actually in 2 Corinthians, the need to tear down the things that raise themselves up in opposition. There's deconstruction and there's assertion. You deconstruct so you can clear away. If there's a building in your way and you want to build a new building, what do you do first? Do you start to build the new building or do you tear down the false one, the one that you need to get rid of? You tear it down, clear it away, and you build something new. Our goal, we're trying to get people, we're going to walk over, we're going to start building. And all of a sudden, they make known that there's another building there by their objections. And you go, oh, this is easy. Bam! The hammer of God's word. Tear it down. You start to try to build, and all of a sudden they say, no, 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 another objection. You go, I'm sorry, I didn't see that break. Bam! Hammer of God's word. Tear it down. God's word is a hammer. And it shatters everything else that raises up against it. Please, God, through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, I want to see it, I want to touch it, I want to believe it when I feel the holes in his hands and his side. For Jews request a sign, there's empiricism, seeing is believing, I will get the knowledge with my experience. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. Maybe we could reason this out, sitting inside of a dutch Could figure out everything that's in the world. Maybe we could just populate the world of ideas of all the things that are in creation from just sitting around thinking about it. Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. This is empiricism and rationalism. The desire to come to the knowledge of these things through our experience or through our reason apart from the revelation of God. Now reason is a part of the revelation of God. A reason without other information plug in to reason about is insufficient. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. There's the revealed word. There's the message from heaven To the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Think about that. What's the power of God? Isn't the gospel the power of God to salvation? Christ is also the power of God to salvation. Is it the case that when you think about Christ, you're thinking about the gospel? When you think about the gospel, you're thinking about Christ? What if they're the same thing? What if the gospel is the mind of Christ? What if Christ is his mind? Would that solve that? For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, The Jews stumbling block into the Greeks' foolishness, but to those who are called, or those who are effectually called, those who are elect and who have been called by the Holy Spirit so that the word is made effectual by the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, whether you're from the nation of Israel or whether you're from any other nation, those who are called, Christ is the power of God and he's also the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God... You can put quotes around foolishness again there. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Weakness you can put quotes as well. It's a sarcasm. Paul's a little bit sarcastic. I'm a little sarcastic. Thank you. Verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren... not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. If you're so smart, why don't you figure it out? Go to the academy. Go to the philosophers. They don't know the difference between a boy and a girl. Think about this. It never ceases to astound me. This is where we are. This is where we are. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And somebody with no education walk into a university, they say, you know, there's like a million genders. I'm pretty sure there's two foolish things of the world. Put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Which is mightier, the pen or the sword? Basically, everybody everywhere all the time would have said the sword, except for the Christianity changed the world. Empires are pulled down by Christianity. Look at the Book of Daniel it's basically repetition over and over again prophecy that hey you know, there's going to be great empires and you know it's going to destroy the most powerful one of all the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world it's going to grind them to dust that's the message over and over again in the Book of Daniel you read the Book of Daniel it has a bunch of visions that basically say that over and over again that's it kingdom of Christ dominates those things. You look around, you feel discouraged. These are the things we've been given. We've been given the word of Christ. And it's powerful. 28. And the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are That no flesh should glory in his presence. Why does God use the ragtag presence of the church to overcome the world? Because it glorifies his name. Why did he he choose Israel as opposed to Pharaoh? Because he set Pharaoh up to crush him under the sea. He raised him up that he might show his power in him. This is the storyline God likes. Raise up enemy, raise up Goliath, defeat Goliath, give honor to David, give honor to Israel, give honor to the church. Verse 30, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, and of God, from God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 to 24 talks about don't let the wise glory in their own wisdom. And it's talking about human wisdom. Don't let the, the strong glory in their strength. Don't let the, the fast or the rich. And this the idea of the glory, it's the various things you can glory in. He says, you know, if you're going to glory in them, glory in this. Let him glory in the Lord. And actually, the long version in Jeremiah is let him glory in this, that he knows and understands me. That's what you're supposed to glory in. That's not all like Romans. Don't be ashamed. What are you glory in? Glory in the knowledge of God, glory in the gospel. So Romans is like he starts out with the negative side, and that's the letter you get. you so Don't be ashamed, that's the letter you get. 1 Corinthians is like, let's glory in this. And this is the letter you get. Same thing, presented in two different angles. One, what should you glory in? The other one, don't be ashamed of it. Chapter 2, verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom. So the excellence of speech, again, rhetoric or of wisdom, and he's talking about excellence of human wisdom, but he doesn't take Aristotle and say, I'm going to use Aristotle to prove the God of the Bible. Nailed it. Doesn't do that. He doesn't say, I'm going to take Plato prove the God of the Bible. Nope. He doesn't go with empiricism to prove the Bible. He doesn't go with rationalism to prove the Bible. He is the word of God. The word from heaven. The Logos the eternal word. I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come to you with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you what? The testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, he preached the gospel. He preached the gospel. He took the word of God. He took the message. He took the testimony. And he preached that. We want to spend our time in the Word. We want to present the Word. We want to take the Word from Heaven, and we want to proclaim it. It's powerful. It transforms individuals. It transforms homes. It transforms churches. It transforms the world. It transforms states. The proclamation of the Word of God. They tell you, I don't care about the Bible. You tell them, God doesn't care that you don't care about the Bible. You keep proclaiming it. Let them attack it. They'll attack it. I guarantee it. Shoot back. They present something stupid, tear it down. What they have to say is stupid. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. If it's not the word given from heaven, I guarantee you it's stupid. You will be able to find how to tear it down. If you don't know how to tear it down, go study. Figure it out. Or talk to me. Let's work through it. The word. Paul went to Horan, and he was determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He proclaimed the word from heaven. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words, rhetoric, of human wisdom, content, not from the Bible, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. You remember those three categories I remember earlier? I told you about? There they are. That your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The power of God, is that talking about miracles? No. It's talking about the gospel. The gospel and Christ are the power of God and are the wisdom of God. Your faith is in the wisdom of God, it's in the power of God. It's in the Word of God from heaven. And it's illuminated to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 6. However,. We speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age. Do not graft on human philosophies to the word of God. That includes with ethics, by the way. We love self-help books. We love them. We want people to tell us what to do. We don't want to think through what does the word of God say. We don't want to look through the application of the word of God. We want to find somebody somewhere to tell us a pragmatic solution, how to get it done, the law of God is an instruction manual to tell you how to rule yourself and to rule the world. It is better. It's better. It's better. You think it's not sufficient? You're wrong. You're dissatisfied with it? You're bored? The problem's in you. Shut up. Go back to the word of God. Get the law. Meditate on it day and night. You don't know how to draw it out? Read the larger catechism. Read the shorter catechism. Come talk to me. You have a problem. The law teaches you how to deal with it. With in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech, and my preaching, Or not with persuasive words of human wisdom, nor with rhetoric, nor with doctrine made up by men. But in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, but not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age. Who are the rulers of this age? Resident Biden? The ruler of the age? I can't finish an ice cream cone. Not the ruler of the age. Who's the ruler of the age? Philosophers. Marx? Sartre? Nietzsche? Philosophers of the age are the ones who rule its ideas and doctrines, its belief systems, its views of what's good and what's evil that move armies and pull down empires. We speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. You know how stable their philosophy? So stable that it's going to become nothing. It's useless, it's meaningless, it's false. It tears itself down, and it will be torn down by the word of God. But we speak the wisdom of God. <clears throat> we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. What does that mean? In ununderstandable utterance? No. Every time you see mystery, every time, every single time you see mystery, it does not mean something that is ununderstandable. Every time it's talking about something that was hidden that is now revealed. My goal is to deeply ingrain that in you so that when I'm dead, you can still say it. So that you find someone better than me. So that you find. Other preachers who don't teach you that drivel is what you have to accept. If somebody tells you that mysteries are things that you can't understand and that God gives you mysteries, they've made the Word of God ununderstandable. All you got left in is human philosophy, right? So the understandability of the Word of God is foundational to everything else, it's the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages of our glory. You see, that's a definitional statement, by the way. It's wisdom that was hidden. And now he's given it. It's revealed. The hidden wisdom which God ordained from before the ages for our glory. We're used to saying for God's glory, right? It is for God's glory. It's for your glory. This wisdom is your glory. Ye glory is him glory in this, that he knows and understands me. If that's the thing we're supposed to glory in—the knowledge of God. Ask yourself for real: Do you glory in the doctrine? It's the thing. It's the thing. Give us a book. hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. The philosophers and the magistrates, they didn't know. Even the Jewish ones. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But they did. Why did God do that? So he could triumph in it. Think they won? Jesus is dead? Satan glories over the dead body of Christ? Broken, shattered, blood out. What do they do when he was resurrected? Like the smug look off their face, real quick. Lord of glory ascended to heaven. Reigning now. Which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, people say this is about heaven, by the way, and it is not. This verse right here, listen. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. What's being talked about there? The hidden wisdom, the mystery, the message of God, the wisdom. It's not talking about, you know, nobody's seen with their eyes or it hasn't entered into the heart of man, what heaven's going to be like. This is the way you get this in a lot of pop preaching. That's not at all what the context is talking about. All the philosophers are really bad, but you know what? Heaven's going to be sweet. It is not what the text is saying. The text is saying the philosophers, they don't know anything. But you know what? Even though eye hasn't seen and ear hasn't heard and human hearts haven't invented out of their flesh, these doctrines, they are revealed. These are the things that God prepared for those who love him. The hidden wisdom. The mystery. I has not seen, ears has not heard. What does that sound like, empiricism? Nor is it entered into the heart of man. What does that sound like, rationalism? People didn't make it up in their hearts, and people didn't see it or hear it. They didn't touch it, taste it, or feel it either. I forgot. Verse 10. God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. There's the words, and he by his Spirit illuminates our minds. For the Spirit teaches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of man, except the spirit of the man, which is in him. Here's the argument in verse 11. You think you're going to know anything that God thinks? Okay, big shot. Riddle me this Do you know what I'm thinking right now? Then why do you think you know what God is thinking? You're going to figure it out by looking at His eyes real intently? We get it because God speaks it with His mouth, He gives us words. How do we know what he's thinking? How do we know him? How do we know God? Because he's given us words. He's revealed them to us through his spirit. The spirit searches all things yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? You can read your own mind, but you're not going to read mine. I can't read yours. You know your own thoughts, nobody else knows your thoughts. For God. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. You see how that's the argument? It's pretty clear, pretty simple, pretty short. Men don't know each other's thoughts. We can't know God's thoughts. He's more powerful than men unless he gives them to us. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, right? two spirits are being contrasted here. Which spirit are we going to be taught by? The Spirit of the world, that's the we received by the power of the word. But the Spirit who is from God. That's what we've received. The Spirit from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. What are the things that were freely given to us? The word, the utterance, the message, the knowledge, the testimony. That's the gift. That's the riches. That was what delivered. Those were freely given to us. These things we also speak what are the things we speak? The things that we're freely given. These things we also speak. Not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. So we're dealing with words from the Holy Spirit. And get this, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. This is the doctrine called the analogy of the faith, also known as comparing scripture with scripture, also known as systematic theology. What are the spiritual things being contrasted with spiritual things? Words. They are Holy Spirit words. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Comparing spiritual words, Holy Spirit words, Holy Spirit words. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Right, we can't figure them out. We can't even know them, apart from the Holy Spirit causing us to get it. They're spiritually discerned. They're Holy Spirit discerned. You put a capital S there. Spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things. Yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. What does it mean that he judges all things but isn't judged by anyone? Think about this. you got two Christians. Both of them say, I can judge everything. judge all things. And then one Christian looks at the other and says, I can judge all things. And he says, but you can't judge me. I'm judged by nobody. How does this work? How does this fit together logically? We can judge all things by the words of the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit's judgment. But we're judged by nobody. We're judged by no worldly wisdom. The only thing that judges us is God. So we can apply the word of God to each other. And in that way, we're not judging each other. God's word is judging. Verse 16. For who is known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? Nobody, right? Nobody. Nobody knows the mind of God so we can tell God what to do. Except we have the mind of Christ we have the mind of Christ. Words, message, testimony, knowledge, utterance. These are the things that were given to us. This is the revelation. These are the words from heaven. This is the logos. This is the wisdom of God. We have the message. We have the gospel. We have the words. And that gives us the mind of Christ. Apart from God revealing himself and giving us these words as utterance, we would not know him. Comments, questions, or objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.